My name is Andrew Gilbert. Welcome to the Jazz Journalists Association podcast, The Buzz. My guest today is music journalist Hannah Edgar. They are a regular contributor to the Chicago Tribune covering jazz, classical, and new music. They also cover jazz and a range of musical idioms for the Chicago Reader and visual arts for art news. Hannah, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into how you pursued this path as a writer, I wanted to ask you about Chicago. I really admire how you've made the city's music your focus. I know as a freelancer, that's partly out of necessity, but you're also committed to covering Chicago's artists and institutions. And I'm wondering, in sort of preparing yourself to do that as you started this, were there certain steps you took to sort of prepare for that? Obviously, Chicago has such a deep musical history on on every side. Yeah, absolutely. So for a little bit of context, I moved here for college, which was in 2014, and I've stayed ever since. So I'm going on my ninth year here. I think that really, I knew I wanted to live in Chicago as a city, as opposed to necessarily going to a specific school. I visited here around 2012, just fell in love with the city, felt like it was where I was meant to be. So in terms of preparing for that, I mean, I have to say that even when I was living in the San Francisco Bay Area, where I was born and raised, I was reading Chicago music journalism, sometimes at a point more than I was reading even local journalism in California. That was kind of my level of research, like getting to know the writers here, getting to know the landscape a little bit. And then when I did get to school, I was a huge nerd and I did go to class and I didn't skip class too much. But I will say that I was pretty committed to getting out of the campus bubble and going to gigs. For a while, I was paying for my own like tickets to shows I was reviewing, for example. I just don't even really think I had a conception that... I could be trusted with a press ticket at 18. But once, you know, the offer was extended and people started showing me that generosity, I mean, really experience was just the best teacher. So yeah, I would say that it was just full on immersion even before I set foot in the city. I'm so intrigued by that. I know as a sort of jazz head in college, I was subscribing to the Village Vanguard, you know, reading Gary Giddens, looking at all the listings, the New York Times, the New Yorker. But I don't think I was hip enough to really be focusing on Chicago. How did that become such a focus for you? I think it really was for me city first. For also a little additional bit of background, I also cover classical music. And that's my musical approach kind of first and foremost. I am classically trained. I do improvise, but I wouldn't say that improvising was a part of my education, for example. When I came here, I think it just became really clear that not only is Chicago a hugely culturally vibrant city, it's also a city where there's a lot of community. There's a little bit less sort of maybe vitriolic or cutthroat competition here. It's also of all the large cities in the U.S., it by far has the lowest cost of living relative to its size. So what I got a sense from even when I like was very much decidedly not hip and kind of going to the usual suspects, I still had a sense that there is an undercurrent of something really fresh happening here and more of an appetite for experimentalism, uh, open-mindedness. And there's also just, even on just a climatological level, a lot of solidarity. And for example, schlepping across town to a gig, like I was living in Hyde Park when I was going to college. And 
to go from Hyde Park to Constellation, which is like a small experimental black box-ish venue up on the northwest side. I mean, you have to make like three transfers, bus to train to bus and all this stuff. I mean, it was just something that I would do happily and a lot of people would do happily. Just the traversal of even the immense space that is the city, if that makes any sense. Tell me a little bit about your path. How did you first start covering music once you got to Chicago? I think like a lot of folks, my student newspaper was really formative. I began writing for them right away, even though I pretty quickly found myself in like a classical niche. I think as I noted to you the other day, the very, very first piece of bylined music criticism I wrote was a review of Regina Carter, a show that she did on campus. And I will never forget whoever runs her Facebook page, like shared it. And it was like probably my like second week of college. And I was just so starry eyed. I'm like, what? You know, that that didn't just go into the beat up looking newspaper boxes around campus and was read by two people. I didn't really connect that even someone in her orbit could take notice like that. So I think that was a really encouraging first step. Then I got pretty involved in classical writing and stuff. But I should say really crucial way that I cut my teeth as well was whereas like I know a lot of folks were part of their college radio station I did the on-campus like presenting series and that was really interesting so even though I wasn't necessarily getting in my curational brain in the way that a college radio host might I was responding to the curational choices of that institution of my boss and then being able to interview folks who came onto campus so I mean that was a way where very early on, almost kind of ridiculously early on, I was interviewing like Paquita de Rivera, Fred Hirsch, folks like that. And when I was still in college, and I'm sure they could tell I was in college. I mean, let's just be very clear. I wasn't exactly a shining luminary starting off in these interviews, but just the fact that I could even share time and space with these people was pretty nuts. Seems like there's been that that sort of path of college paper to alt-weekly to daily paper. And I'm wondering, it's obviously been really disrupted in a lot of ways, but did you find that was the case for you? Not quite, actually. Let's see. So I graduated and then I think a little step along the way was the internship cycle or cyclone, maybe as I would rather call it. You know, I was doing an internship here, an internship there. A really formative internship was for Sound Opinions at WBZ, which is no longer a WBZ program. But I mean, talk about like meta. I was kind of doing audio production for two music critics. And that was really, really neat. And I was also, you know, kind of that weirdo who almost exclusively listened to classical and jazz music. And so suddenly I'm entering my new wave era like 20 years late, I guess. And it was it was really neat. So that was a big stepping stone. And as a result of a couple of those internships, I did have a full-time job at Chicago Magazine for about a year and a half, two years, where I just was a digital editor. So, I mean, I could be editing anything under the sun on a given day, like flirting dangerously with food journalism, all sorts of random stuff. But I have to say, when I left that, I thought I was going to just leave journalism. I, I said, okay, this is it. I did that. I freelanced a bit on the side. Like I did have my first bylines in the Chicago Reader, our local all weekly around that time. But I was lucky to be in these sort of legacy publications. But that's also what I walked away from. Only for a couple months into a graduate program that I was doing, I heard from an editor at the Chicago Tribune and he said, hey, we are looking for someone freelance to fill in for Howard Reich. Would you be interested? And I said, 
oh God, this is the job I've wanted since I was 16. And I really did do this kind of dramatic, like never again, I'm never going to be a journalist again. And I, I don't know, it, it called me back and I'm the happiest I've ever been professionally. Talk a little bit about that situation at the Trib because it's unusual. And on top of that, I mean, there's sort of the arrangement there and then stepping in for a writer you've been reading for years is a it's an interesting heady experience i'm sure absolutely i mean it's it's less like following in someone's footsteps than trying to swim in them there's no there's no comparison i am pretty transparent with people i write at a maximum about five times a month for the tribunes you know whereas of course a full-time writer could be churning out multiple articles a day so it's just a very different volume that we're dealing with there then as you mentioned it is a really unique arrangement right so at the bottom of all of my bylines for the Tribune, there will be a disclaimer that says that its classical and jazz coverage is funded in part by something called the Rubin Institute for Music Criticism. Gary Giddens has served on the panel of the Institute several years. Essentially what it is, is it's a professional development program for music writers, again, primarily in the sphere of classical, but they are, thank goodness, incorporating more jazz coverage into it as well. Young writers will participate in a like weekend-long intensive in San Francisco. And then at the end of that, a writer is given a really generous cash prize to kind of kickstart their career. I did participate in that in 2018. But what Ruben also does on top of this wonderful incubator every two years is they help fund criticism at a couple daily papers in the United States. So the Tribune is fortunately the recipient of Rubin Institute money. And that grant basically is what helps fund my position. Other partner papers include the Boston Globe, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, Dallas Morning News. So there's a good number of us out there. Let's hope that makes it out to the West Coast. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. Partly again, out of necessity, like papers will have either a staff writer or or designated freelancer to cover the classical world. And then jazz sort of gets picked up here and there. And I'm wondering if you found having your ear to both worlds or particularly where the worlds sort of connect, if that's informed your coverage, that you found things, the kind of composed projects maybe that also will employ improvisation that help feed your coverage of those kinds of things, that you're looking for those because you sort of have a foot in both worlds. I definitely know what you mean. I think the siloing is something that increasingly looks more and more retrograde. No shade on the Tribune, but for example, every year we do this end of year roundup where we name artists a Chicagoan of the year. So there's a Chicagoan of the year in theater, Chicagoan of the year in film, etc. And we have a Chicagoan of the year in classical and Chicagoan of the year in jazz. And we have a Chicagoan of the year in pop. And I think that everyone who writes those profiles knows that we're working with labels that are just not sufficient in some way. They're insufficient in a pretty significant way. So I think that what I try to do in my coverage, even though the infrastructure of the paper and its tendency is to, you know, still have those boxes, I'm trying to demonstrate through the prose itself, which I I can control, right? That these are often flowing into the same really rich tributary, especially in Chicago. I mean, the AICM, that is classical music. That's black classical music. I think that that's something that is really inarguable. I mean, same in the classical world. I think that this sort of like 
is it improvisation? Is it composition? Is it this? Is it that? You you are missing so much if you're just looking at those two poles. And I think that we're really fortunate to be the host of, you know, thanks to groups like the AACM. For decades, they're really, really rich, have a really, really rich scene of people who we would call, you know, creative musicians broadly, improvising musicians broadly. I mentioned Constellation before. I mean, absolute lodestar locally of creative music, whether that is notated, non-notated, etc. So I think of these as descriptors. I keep joking with my editor. I'm like, I'd love it if someday I could file one of these year-end stories where it's just stuff I dig. It's kind of more of the <laughs> genre, but yeah. maybe someday. Yeah. I'm wondering, do you find, or in what ways do you find that your experience as a musician, as a player, informs your work as a writer? Something I like to tell people because it's true, is that I think that if I ever, God forbid, was in a position where I couldn't play violin anymore, that's my primary instrument, I'd probably have to stop writing. I feel pretty strongly about that. This is very personal. I would never apply the same logic to somebody else. But I think I would have to stop writing about music because to me, the act of picking up my instrument trying to get something in tune, trying to nail rhythm, or now that I've been improvising more, but mostly in kind of a Jewish liturgical setting, which is a whole other story, being in a position where for the first time in years, I really feel in over my head musically. If I wasn't putting myself in that position regularly, I don't think I have any any business passing judgment on people who are also putting themselves out there in the same way. I am classically trained, as I mentioned. I play in a community orchestra in Chicago, which I absolutely love because all of us are doing this at the cracks and grottos of our life. They're doctors, public school teachers, lawyers, and we're all trying to make it work. And I really love that feeling. And I also play in a piano quartet that I really, really love, where again, uh, none of us, our quote unquote day job isn't in music, but we make the time. We wake up Every Sunday morning, it's the closest thing to a regular, almost religious ritual I have. And I get to share that with people. So I think it informs it in that sense that you have to stay humble, I guess, is the biggest thing. And I'm really seeking out new ways to try to humble myself, as opposed to maybe the more self-conscious view of musicianship I had in high school. It's like, if it's not good enough, don't even bother trying. But here I am making music with people who are also having to juggle it with a lot of other obligations and who are also being courageous to put themselves out there. I, I think it's a beautiful thing. That is so interesting. I sort of feel like this stance of feeling like you need to have creative, emotional skin in the game <laughs> To pursue this, the, the writing is so interesting. I don't know if I've quite heard anyone express that before. I'm working on a story right now about disability in music. I'm, I do wonder if something happened to me where I was not able to play the violin physically tomorrow. Am I ready to give it up tomorrow? I don't know. But that's also humbling in its own way, mm -hmm. right? And, and yeah, I think that there's many different contingencies that people experience with their own musicianship and writing about music. I find as a freelancer and these ongoing relationships with publications and editors, I know one way I think about it is I want to make my editors look good in the sense that if there's an important story, something that someone from outside, you're looking and say, oh, the San Francisco Chronicle, they should have covered that. Like I want to been, at least I pitched it, right? T talk a little bit about your figuring out what you want to pitch, what's important. 
Yeah, that's a really important question, I think, for a freelancer, because something I think about a lot is that it's only relatively recently that I have been able to be comfortable and, like I said before, happy as a freelancer, because if you are putting into it so much unpaid labor that you don't get out of it, then that's challenging. Like if you're the one making pitches 90% of the time, like I am incredibly fortunate to have like relatively recently reached a state of equilibrium where I get inbound about as many pitches as I do outbound. And that's also just something I want to be sure to notice from a freelancer perspective that that suddenly makes things manageable, but it's also taken several years for me to get to that point. Yeah. So then you, you need to be thoughtful about your time, probably not pitching somewhere that would be a super long shot first. Time is of the essence. You want to kind of get back a yes or a no and pitch it somewhere where you can be confident that you will get a yes or a no, as opposed to like, you know, moldering on, <laughs> as an unread somewhere in someone's inbox drigs. And now I have a sense of also the rates of the people that I work most regularly with. And I do think about, okay, for this story to really look how I want it to look, how much labor will I expend? And what's the editing style of the person I work with? And I guess, you know, even though certainly I do think about rate and labor, often what usually is honestly the primary conviction, though, is in what publication can I be pretty confident that this is going to become an iteration that I would be really proud of and that I can see also in my head? That's usually what guides me. Like if I really think, hey, the Chicago reader, ah, like I know my editor would be ace on this. I bet they could get such and such do photographs more with the Tribune. I also know the style of the staff photographers because I work with them so regularly. So if I see that, you know, say Jason is like coming with me on an assignment or maybe it's Terrence, I know what those photos are going to look like. So that can be really rich as well. And it's just working with a bunch of different palettes. And I, I find it really exciting. Certainly, I still experience now, of course, little experiences with timing where it's like, oh, darn it, like someone didn't get to this email quite soon enough. Now, I can't pitch it somewhere else. Or now I have to rethink what this story could be. But I feel really fortunate that because I have this like almost parochial Chicago bias, I really know that I will most likely get a response eventually from the editors I work with because they know me. And again, that's taken some time. The crackling sound you hear is my jealousy over hearing you talk about working with photographers that way. Yeah, yeah. That is, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, Trib has an amazing photo desk. We still have many staff photographers, which is almost unheard of. I, I want to ask when and if you were approached by young people interested in, in music writing, what advice might you give them? I think... You just go for it. I know that seems really overly maybe quixotic, but you can't wait for someone to give you permission in this industry because the opportunities are so scarce. But we do live in a time and setting of incredible opportunity in that you can actually self-publish. You can create a blog, create your own clips, and then just present them to someone and see what happens. I do think that, again, the the privilege of having passed through a college setting is helpful in that you have a ready-made volunteer student organization often in those settings to give your clips some legitimacy. 
even though, you know, very rarely are they paid for. In some ways, it's quite akin to being self-published. I mean, that's the only reason I ever got on press lists was a college newspaper is included in Google's SEO. And there's just some level of legitimacy there. So I'd say go for it. If there is a student newspaper, you can write for a volunteer organization, write for it. Also in the age of, you know, substacks and more kind of bootstrapped publications, you'd be surprised at how many publications are out there that could be seeking your voice already and are willing to take a chance on a young writer. But I would definitely not get discouraged. If you're writing for two weeks and try to pitch the times, I think that's probably something that may not be a super inspiring experience for you. But as long as you have that understanding, I think the sky's the limit. Anna, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure talking with you. Looking forward to reading your work in the future. Thanks, Andy. This was really fun. I'm Susan Brink for the Jazz Journalists Association. Thank you for listening to The Buzz, a podcast produced by the JJA. We release new episodes regularly on all the major platforms. To learn more about us, go to jjanews.org. This episode was edited by Wiz Petta. The John Michaels composition, Big Vic is our theme music. Toodaloo! Toodaloo!